Dankeschön. So, if you're elementary age kids, that's the idea of the evening. We're going down here to uh, be a part of Bible study this morning. So you're welcome to do that. Uh, you guys are sweet. So you guys are in the book of Hebrews. I thought you guys were in Acts. I think I got the wrong verse. That was a joke. I'm just, just kidding. Just kidding. I, um, I have it. Well, man, I'm so ha- happy to be here again. I don't know if some of you were here the last time I came and preached. Um, I didn't think I'd be invited back, so I'm just glad to be here and um, just give you some updates on the Haven Church and where we're located. Uh, my name is Pastor Tim. I'm from Monroe, Louisiana. Um, I was saved here, well, saved in Framingham, Massachusetts. The military brought me here, and um, just from there, Bible college and everything, the Lord, I thought I was going back down south, but the Lord had other plans, and every time we tried to leave Massachusetts, uh, he would keep us here, and uh, finally, we, we submitted to what the Lord was doing, and what we saw was he was really shaping our hearts to, to plant a church in Fitchburg. So we are in Fitchburg. It's about an hour and six minutes here, uh, to be exact. Uh, almost two hours, because the lady in front of me was driving slow. But that's a whole other story. Um, I got here, got to pray with Robert. So uh, Pastor Robert, it was, it was, it was great. So I um, thank you for being here. Um, you guys, uh, first I just want to say, first and foremost, um, church planting is hard. And so anyone who's going into that, I just want to let you know it's very, very hard. But one thing that God has been very gracious to me, and he has been gracious to me in one way, that is definitely by introducing me to Pastor Robert and his wife and his family. And they have just been really just a blessing to me. And also you guys have been a blessing to us. Uh, There have been many times where we were like, you know, what we were going to do financially, spiritually. I've been in the dumps. And nevertheless, the Lord always sends mercy house to to help us in some type of way. So you guys have really been a blessing to us. So for me, my wife, and uh, she wanted to be here today, uh, woke up this morning really sick. We had um, VBS this week, um, and I was sick as well. I'm feeling better. Uh, I told her not to give me a kiss, but she did. And so now she is sick, so she wanted to be here as well. But uh, from our hearts, we just want to say thank you for all that you've done, uh, that you're doing, the prayers, uh, and just the support of us. Uh, last time I was here, I think we, we were just had our core team, and um, since then, it's been a while, uh, we've had two people saved, which, and they are really dug in. I mean, these really loving the Lord, the discipleship, just has been a really, really, really real blessing. As If you remember, I told you also that in Fitchburg, there was a really a large population of um, witchcraft in Fitchburg. I don't know if some of you were here, and we talked about that. Well, this is actually someone who was really caught up into that, deep into that, and she has been removed from that, and uh, she is loving the Lord and texting me all the time questions about the Bible and Jesus, and so it's been really, really a blessing. So I just want to thank you guys for all that you're doing, all that you have done for us, um, and we love you, and um, really believe that the Lord has um, brought us into fellowship with each other. Amen? We're going to be looking at our text in Hebrews chapter 13. Talking too loud? Is that good? A little bit of a. I can scream, brother. Okay, good. Um, I want to start by talking about prayer. So, prayer has been the biggest weapon that we've had 
at the Haven Church in Fitchburg. You know, as the pastor, I've seen just hard hearts softened. I've seen angry people become hospitable. I've seen haters become givers. And I'm not talking about believers, I mean unbelievers, I'm talking about believers. I'm talking about people that I've actually had on my team. I'm talking about myself as well. Prayer has really changed our outlook, our aspect of how things should be. Uh, We have truly become a praying church. Uh, And that has been such a blessing to us because we were just really trying to do a lot of things just in our own strength. And they were failing. And because they were failing, we started to think, well, maybe the Lord's not in this. But that wasn't the case. And so we, we, we became a praying church as we should be. Um, taking time to pray, even when we have planned, maybe our teachers have planned certain things or I've planned a message, taking time out of that to listen to the Holy Spirit and just like, no, we need to pray about this situation has definitely helped us and changed us and shaped our hearts in in many different ways. We're going to be looking at prayer today in this text. This prayer right here in Hebrews 13 is a benediction. That is the utterance or the bestowing of a blessing, especially at the end of a religious service. There's a pastor named Walter C. Kayser. He says that benedictions are greeted in America with great delight. And here's the reason why. Because it means that the service will soon end and the people will be free to go. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Um, but um, benedictions are so much more than that. Um, benedictions are not just nice closings uh, to the end of a service. They're meant to impart a gift from God to us. A gift of grace from God to us and mercy on our lives as we leave uh, the walls of the church. Now, there are many benedictions, but this may be one of the most beautiful ones we read in in Scripture. One of the most beautiful and deep. So let's dive into it. Now, we've already had the text read. I forgot you guys do that. That was half of my my sermon right there. So now I got to come up with something. Um, But um, I can read it one more time. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So to say that I have been busy is is the biggest understatement ever. There's been a lot of work that's been going on with church planning, and I got to this place where, man, I was just trying to do everything on my own. Now, I've been to the seminars, I've been to the conferences, I've been warned by pastors uh, older and wiser than me, like, you know, make sure you are working in Jesus' strength and not your own strength, and I'm just like, I got this, I, I understand that, that will never happen. And so, what happened was, I really just started really grinding. I, I didn't like where the church was at. I felt like we needed to be moving and really we going a lot faster. So I'm pulling all-nighters. I'm, I'm only sleeping like five hours out of the week, but I'm doing it for Jesus, so it's okay, right? And so one Monday morning, I sit down and I'm about to eat lunch. And man, I just had this weird pain in my chest. And it, it was kind of one of those, those feelings where something was just pressing down on my chest. And so I'm thinking, man, am I having a heart attack or something like that? But it wasn't a heart attack. It kind of felt like also indigestion. So I'm like, man, I just don't know what it is. So I tried to, you know, just blow a little bit, calm down, just see what's going on. But um, it got to the place where I was like, I need to go to the hospital. Now, I'm from Louisiana. We don't go to the hospitals. So as soon as I said that, my wife was like, oh, this must be serious. So because I do not like going to the hospital, I decided to go to an urgent care. So I went to the urgent care. I knew some of the nurses there. I used to work there. 
And as soon as I get in, they're like, ah, don't worry, you're going to be fine, you're going to be fine. They, they plug me in and do their thing. And I guess when they see my blood pressure in my heart, the lady looks at one of the nurses, looks at the other nurse and says, we got to get him out of here fast. So the ambulance comes and we're rushing me to the hospital. This was about around in June. Uh, get to the hospital, uh, the doctor comes in, my blood pressure is like at 180. Uh, I, at this point, I think I'm, I'm feeling like I'm about to go. Uh, my wife is there with me, she's worried. Um, doctor comes in and he's just telling me what has happened. So any doctors here, you'll know that my heart had went into AFib. So the, the, the normal rhythm of the heart beating, at my, it was out of sync. So it was just like really out of sync and also really low. And so um, <clears throat> because it was happening in the way I felt, I just knew this was the end. So I'm kissing my wife and I'm just writing a will in my, <laughs> in my mind. And before I, before I um, pass out, you know, the last thing I can tell my wife is that I, that I definitely love her. Well, when I come back to, they've, they've shocked me. They've got my, my heart back to a normal rhythm. And just to speed this up a little bit, um, because I'm only 34, um, typically people around my age when this happens, this typically doesn't happen to, like, to people around 50. So since I'm 34 and the reason that it happened, it typically happens to college students or people around my age who are going through midlife crisis or, or, or different things of that be because of stress. I had an echo done and my heart was perfectly fine. It was perfectly fine. Now the good thing about this is I, like, I thought it was because of like, I thought my heart was clogged or something, just thinking myself, so I started only eating salad. So I lost a lot of weight and while I was waiting for the echo, so that was good. But the doctor told me that wasn't the case. It really was uh, stress. It really was stress. I had gotten to a place of putting my confidence, not in Jesus, but my own power. I had totally burned out. God woke me up to my need to trust him, that if he has called me to Fitchburg, he will supply all my needs. He will equip me with everything that I have, that I need. Now, the Christian, the Christian is called to do the will of God, but how? And that's when it gets tricky. How are we supposed to do this? We have this desire to, to do things for the Lord. Uh, we want to get going. We want to we start moving and make decisions on our own. But God is telling us, you know, you have to do this in my power. You have to do this on my time. And this is very important. Now, we might not know who the author is of Hebrews. Uh, I believe it's Paul, but to each his own. But we do know that this prayer is a prayer of confidence in the power of Jesus Christ. It's a power of confidence when you read it. The author of Hebrews is saying, saying I am very confident in Jesus Christ. That has actually been the, the, the theme almost of Hebrews, um, is that Jesus Christ is, is better than everyone else. He is, he is, he is, the, greatest, he is the greatest thing of, of, of most importance, and he is who I need to accomplish everything that I need. So the author is finishing everything that they've said about uh, Jesus Christ by saying, I have confidence in Jesus Christ. Whether it's in our personal lives or as a, as a congregation, we must not be people that work in our own strength. To work in our own strength is crazy because it goes against the Christian story. It goes against our, our Christian DNA. Uh, it goes against the core of who we are as a people. We were saved by grace. We were saved by grace. Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 3 through 4, it says, we who serve by God, by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Paul is saying, I have 
lots of reasons to put confidence, and he goes through all of these things. He's a Hebrew, he's a, he was a Pharisee, and all of these things. He says, man, I lost all of that. I lost all of that so I could gain Christ. I put no confidence in myself. So this passage that we're about to jump in outlines everything that we need for completing and succeeding in any ministry or call that the Lord calls us to, or that you are on now. I'll say that again. This passage is going to outline everything that we need for completing and succeeding in any ministry or call that the Lord has called us to or that you are in right now. He starts off by saying the God of peace. If you're taking notes, the first point is the God of peace. I mean, the God of peace who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus. So growing up in, in Monroe, Louisiana, I had the privilege of seeing a lot of brawls. I watched my older cousins take on neighborhood bullies. Um, there were a lot of fights in school, outside of school. And one thing I do remember about all these fights is that whenever my cousin or, or someone else was about to fight, the first thing they would say was, do you know who I am? You're right, you're right? And they would just go back and forth, like, no, do you know who I am? It's like, no, do you, do you know who I am? You know, trying to scare the, the, the other person. Every fight would always start like that. I think the author right here is saying to us, do you know who your God is? How easily we forget who God is when we come into a circumstance or when he calls us to do something too big for us. If this is you, don't feel condemned. You are in great company. Moses, Abraham, Elijah, the apostles, Paul, all needing to be encouraged and reminded of who God is. The author is saying the God of peace who brought again from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the greatest display of divine power in the history of the universe. That's our God. And that resurrection power is still working in the lives of people today, waking them up from darkness to see the light of Christ. To take someone like even me, myself, who was chasing money and fame and chasing all of these things and then to, to, to change my heart and to turn me away from them things and to, to, to make me turn to Jesus and then to hear his call and then to hear that call to be a pastor. That is an amazing, amazing, amazing power. And I say that because uh, in the hood, I'm from Louisiana, so I'm, you know how I go. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the ghettos of Monroe, Louisiana, we have a lot of pastors. And we see them and we, we, we respect them uh, because we pity them. And the reason we pity them is because they're broke, right? And they have to do free counseling. Pretty much that's what it is. Everyone takes their problems to pastors, yet when it's all said and done, they go away. So everyone in the hood just loves, loves pastors. There was never something that I thought about or thought that it was never on my radar. Yet Jesus didn't care about any of that. I love the song that we were just singing, singing that Jesus chased after me and now I'm chasing after him. That's what Jesus does. That resurrecting power is still working. It's still waking up people to his glory and to his beauty, making much out of himself. God, Jesus Christ has a plan for us. He doesn't care what our plans are for ourselves. As Jesus has his eye on you, he's going to capture you and capture your heart. So that power is still working. And so the author is calling God the God of peace. In John chapter 16, Jesus is telling the disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he will be leaving them soon. And then he says that their joy will turn to sorrow. And then he says this in chapter 33, I mean, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me 
you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. We can experience peace because Jesus has overcome the world. Now, what is the significance of this statement? Well, Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you may have a lot of problems in your life. I don't know you, but I'm just going to assume you have a lot of stuff going on, maybe a lot of stuff you've brought into here. But I wanted you to be encouraged that the number one problem in your life has been handled by Jesus Christ. And that problem is sin. We had no way of overcoming sin, and, and we were doomed, destined to destruction by the wrath of God. Yet Jesus takes the sin of the world, and he dies as if he was a sinner for us. So we are healed by Jesus, taking the cross for us. And through this, we can have peace now with God. So we go from enemies of God to friends and partners with God. We'll talk more about that, partners with God. But can you imagine going into a business deal with an enemy or inviting an enemy over for Thanksgiving dinner, introducing them to your loved ones? Can you imagine that? Well, this is what the peace of God looks like for believers. Jesus knocks at the door of our hearts, of, of, of the hearts of his enemies for that. And he says he will come and sit and eat with us. God enlists us as partners in what he is doing in the world. Jesus is reconciling the world back to himself, and he uses all of us to do it, those of us who are his children. So when Jesus tells us that in him we may have peace, we say, oh man, we say amen because the peace of God is a fact, and it's also a weapon. The peace of God is power to do whatever he has called you to do. In Philippians 4-7, and I have a lot of references from Philippians because the Haven Church is actually in the book of Philippians right now. It says in Philippians 4-7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. So without the peace of God, you will not walk in the good works Christ has planned for you. And if you do walk the path that Christ has planned for you, your walk will be filled with anxiety. See, that's what happened with me and my stress and my, my, um, my, my AFib situation. I placed all my, 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 my worries and my, my cares on myself and my ability and others in crisis, saying they're saying, what about me? What about my power, Tim? When are you going to draw from that? And I love what Proverbs uh, 12, 25 says about anxiety. It says, anxiety weighs down the heart. It weighs down the heart. So Satan uses fear and doubt. That, that's his thing. That's what he does. That's his go-to. So before asking God what his will is for your life, I want you to write this down. Before asking God what his will is for your life, first ask yourself, do you know who your God is? He is the one who can make you perfect. He promises that he will finish the work he started in you, Philippians 1.6. You can believe him because the power he used to rise Jesus from the dead he gives to us. So whom shall we fear? Do you know who your God is? The author of Hebrews then moves into Jesus, talking about Jesus. In verse 20, he says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. 
the great shepherd of the sheep. What a, what a wonderful title for our Lord Jesus and for our discussion on trusting God and his power. You know, sheep desperately depend on the shepherd for all of their needs. Whoa. Okay. The power of Jesus. You just saw it. You just witnessed it right there. Um, I'm always, uh, it's, kind of, it's always kind of funny when we talk about sheep. I, I've never even seen a sheep, right? But, but pastors talk about sheep like we're like sheepologists, don't we? Right? Like it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of crazy, but so I looked up this stuff that I'm about to say, but because uh, I, don't, I don't even know anything about sheep, but apparently sheep desperately depend on the shepherds for all of their needs. But I got to thinking about this. Do sheep know that they need their shepherd? Do they actually know that? And do they know that the further they go away, the closer they are to danger? I don't, I don't think they know that. I don't think they know that, and I, and I don't think that we consider that ourselves. Psalms 103 says, know that, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So in America lately, um, depending on anyone seems to be a sign of weakness. I mean, we value self-sufficiency when none of us are self-made. None of us are self-made, but we value uh, the idea that we're self-made. You know, if, if you ever had your diaper changed, you're not self-made. Right? You, just, you just aren't. You're just not self-made. Yet we like to think we are. But I love, this is what I love about the Apostle Paul. Definitely helped me uh, in my ministry as a pastor because he framed his whole life by the thought that he is not self-made in any way whatsoever. Um, the Apostle Paul, he shaped his life in this way that, 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 that the path to strength is weakness. As I told you, he says, I put no confidence in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves, to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. He says in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11, uh, therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with uh, distresses, with persecution, with difficulty for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So whatever you feel called to, if you're a child of God, if you want to do a mighty work, you have to decrease so Jesus can increase. You have, to be, you have to become okay with being weak. Looking in the mirror and saying, I can't do this without your power. Because there will be insults, there will be difficulties, there will be persecution for Christ's sake. But in weakness, we are strong. That's my prayer every time before I preach. And studying and sermon prep is, is great. And we're supposed to do that. But it means nothing if God doesn't work through his word right? So my prayer every time is, God, I need you. I need you right now. I need your power. Jesus is the great shepherd who promises never to leave or forsake, and he proved it by dying. John 10 and 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep because he shed his blood for the sheep. And that blood establishes an eternal covenant with God, an eternal covenant with God. He is, as the whole book of Hebrews affirms, great in person, 
Therefore, he is greater than even the angels or any mortals. He is also great in the office. No one can compare to him, not the high priest Aaron, the priest Melchizedek, the leader Joshua, or even Moses. It is an everlasting and eternal covenant. It is the very covenant God made with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. It is the one he made with Abraham in Genesis 12. And indeed, it is the same one he made with David in 2 Samuel 7 and the one he renewed in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So the, the blood referred to the substitutionary sacrificial death of Christ, which satisfied the divine justice of God, that wrath of God, when we were just too poor and unable to make payments for ourselves. He is the great shepherd. The blood is the great pledge and assurance of our peace with God. So since this covenant is eternal, and since we have such a great, uh, a great shepherd, why do we fret or why do we worry? Why do we fret or worry about the means and the plans and how we are going to get there? Particularly, I would say, as a church, as a congregation, how do we, why are we, why are we living in fear? I told our congregation in, in Fitchburg that I really think as a pastor I have the authority to say to them that they really need to get rid of cable. And the, and the reason why I said that is because it seems like the news is really scaring my people. You get what I'm saying? The news is really just freaking people out because they feel like the world's going to come to an end. And these are ministers. These are pastors. They've read Revelations. I don't understand. They understand that we win. You, you get that, right? Like, we, we win the battle. But for some reason, you know, politics and everything, everyone is just fear fearful. We shouldn't live like that. Our Lord is not about to revise or reconstruct his plan due to what some think are unexpected movements of men and nations. No, our Lord has remained on course. So what? What is the purpose of all the truth that we've been talking about so far? How is this played out in our, our day to day? Well, we see that in, in verse 21. In verse 21. Let me read that to you. Actually, let me just read the 20, the whole thing, 20 to 21. Now, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, verse 21, here it is, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, I love systematic theology. I am, I'm a big dork. I love it. I love learning about it. Um, I love reading about systematic theology. Um, the, the goal of systematic theology is to gather basically everything the Bible says about a particular subject and kind of just put it in a category right there. So, you know, evangelism or whatever. What does the Lord say? What does the word say about evangelism? Wrap it up, put it in a box, put it in the cor corner. That is systematic theology and I love it. Um, but something that um, someone has pointed me to recently is to try to focus on a more biblical theology. Biblical theology. Has anyone heard of biblical theology? Some of you guys? So biblical theology, what it does is it traces the unfolding story of the Bible. So biblical theology really values the unity of the Bible. Uh, I'll give you an example. So Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So the systematic theology in that is election will be created in Christ Jesus. The biblical theology in that is God, good works prepared beforehand. So what the text is saying is that God had a plan before he created the world. Uh, there's a storyline, there's a theme running through the scriptures. And so we kind of heard it during worship today, but it, what, I'll, what I'll talk about it is that what God is doing is he is, before the world even began, he has come up with a plan to reconcile the world back to himself. And so in biblical theology, what you're doing is trying to see, well, what is that plan? How does that plan play out? How do we see that plan play out? I think what happens with systematic theology is that uh, it's really, you know, blows our heads up and it gives us a lot of knowledge. And it's great. I'm, obviously, I love it. Uh, but what biblical theology does, it says, well, how does it work? And what is, how do I play a part in that? I think we need to get back to biblical theology because I believe systematic theology uh, what it has done is made us really, really smart and really, really slow in getting the work done. Does that make sense? And so what I'm trying to say is that when you look at biblical theology and you read your Bible, what you're seeing is what God is saying is that you play an ultimate part. If you're a believer in Christ, you are part of the story. You are a big part of the story. Biblical theology teaches us the one story of the one God who redeems one people. This discipline helps us understand what it means to be a member of God's people. God's people discover their mission by following in the steps of Jesus, who both redeems us, and get this, he also empowers us to continue his ongoing mission of reconciling the world back to himself. This is the partnership that I was talking about earlier. The people of God play a major part in the work that Christ is already doing. Looking back at Ephesians 2.10, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. Christ didn't just save us. He lives through us and he empowers us to do his will, to continue his story. In Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So um, I, like, I can't remember who said it, but uh, someone said it in the commentary that it's, I think it was John MacArthur, it's all of God and it's all of us. Meaning God has saved us and he's, he's rescued us but at the, and he sanctifies us, but at the same time, we are also chasing after God. Yet it is him, his spirit, who is changing us to even want to change after God so that he gets the glory. It really is amazing how, how this works. Um, it's kind of really insane. You know, like when I tell my kids to, to clean their room, I don't go help them out. I tell them to do it. And if they don't do it, I punish them. It, but, but God knows our human flesh is weak. And so he, he gives us a mission, equips us, and then motivates us to do it. And then he blesses us for doing it. And it, personally, it makes no sense to me how good our God is to us, how good he is to us. So our text says that he, he equips us with everything that is good that we need. The Lord sustains us and he provides all that we will need to complete the mission. He will not call you to do anything that he will not go before you in or that he's not already there anyway. He empowers you to do whatever it is that he is laying on your heart. I'll give you a couple of verses before we close. First Peter 5.10 says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who call you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 2 Peter 1.3, I love this verse. It says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So it says, as we are learning more about Christ, what that text is saying, as we learn more about Christ, we start to become like him. The more we know about Christ, we deepen our relationship with God and we become like him, which is the purpose of our salvation. We need God, God's help to do his will. We cannot accomplish these things on our own. Our Lord knows that. So our aim should be to please God, and the only way to do that is through deepening our relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you ever stepped back and just really just asked, what's the purpose of my salvation? What is the, what is the purpose of salvation? What, is, what, what, are we, what, is, what am I supposed to be doing? What is it really all about? I think Romans 8.29 kind of answers that question for us. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. The firstborn among many brothers. The, the plan is that we become more like Jesus and reflect his glory to others. His resurrection power has been given us so we can awaken in the hearts uh, wake and waken in the hearts the darkness that all of us have. That is what, biblical, what I love about biblical theology. I am a partner in what God is doing. And so since I am a partner, like any job, God's going to equip me with everything I need. All of this is given to us to encourage us to, be, to move for Jesus. Uh, I love in Acts, and I'm going off my notes, but I love in Acts where uh, it seems to be saying that God has placed us places for a reason. You know, we, we don't just live where we live. You guys aren't just here at Mercy House for a reason that he has placed you here. And since he has placed you here, there's fruit to be made here. And so you, you witness, you, you, you do things, and, and sometimes you, you don't see the results of it. But you don't stop and you don't quit because God has people here as well. People, you get what I'm saying? God has people here as well, and we know this because he promises that he's put us here for a reason. All of that is to motivate and encourage us to continue to serve him, even when we don't see the purpose or even when we're not seeing the results right at this moment. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And through Jesus Christ, we will give him glory forever, forever when we reflect his glory. John Piper gives a definition of glorifying God. He says glorifying means feeling and thinking and acting in a way that reflects the greatness of God, that makes much of God, that gives evidence of the supreme greatness of all his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold, manifold perfections. So God is calling us to reflect his glory in the platforms of our lives. Not everyone is called to be a pastor, but Christians are called to reflect Jesus. So your jobs, your neighbors, your passions, all of that must be leveraged for God's glory. This is biblical theology. God reconciling the world by shining through his people, equipping them to work for him. And he is glorified through this. And he gives us his peace and his Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the grave, to do it. These are things to celebrate 
about. You have no reason to fear. You have no reason to shy back. Ask yourself, do you know who your God is? Is your confidence in your great shepherd? And do you also understand that you need him daily? You need him daily. All of these questions have to be dealt with by all who profess the name of Christ. If you profess to know the name of Jesus, these are questions that you have to ask yourself. Not what is your will for me, God? First, do I know my God before I step foot out there into this world? Do I know his power and truly believe in it? We must sacrifice our will and walk in the will of God. This is what we see in Ephesians chapter 10. That God has a plan for us when we were created in him. And he has good works for us to walk into. And that he walks with us. And it also encourages us. I was thinking, what does this encourage me to do personally? It encourages me to pursue others in relationship and hope to reconcile them with God. I mean, with, with everything that we've been told, the, the great confidence that we have in God, knowing that I can reflect God's glory, not my glory, because I have nothing to glory, but the God that's in me, it can awaken someone else just like it awakened me and just like it awakened you as well. This should help me want to pursue others in relationship, pursue others that God is chasing in relationship. As I close, um, I just want to read it read this, that Jesus' blood ushers us into an eternal covenant of salvation that results in a reflection of God's glory both now and also in the life to come. The Christian is called to do the will of God. He or she is equipped by Jesus who has given him them saving grace and transforming grace at the cross. And so by this grace, we will do the will of God in our lives. We'll become something that reflects the original intentions of God at creation. God is reconciling the world back to himself, and he uses us to do that. This transformation will result in a reflection of God's essence, his glory, and us as glory bearers. And that reflection will go on from now throughout eternity. All of it brought to us by Jesus Christ and his death at the cross. And so as I stand before you and, and everything that I just said, um, I had to have a wake-up call, man. Just really just had to really think about, like, what am I doing? What am I after? What is, what is, uh, what is, what is God has planned for us? Um, what, what some of the things that I've learned is, as a church planner is that you're not called to plan a church. You're called to a city. You know, you get what I'm saying? And so all of these things that I've learned, I've learned these things through being on a hospital bed, Jesus taking me out of the ministry, basically saying, you know what, you're doing too much, and you're not doing it in my glory. Now I've come out of that to a place where I delegate, I hear better, I'm listening to see what God is doing, praying to align my heart with him, and he has been so faithful to me. Now that's not just for me, that's for you as well. I don't, I don't know what God is calling you to do here at Mercy House. I don't know what God is calling you to, what circumstance that you're finding yourself in. But what I love about it, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, what we read is that through salvation, we have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do you understand that? A kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have much to celebrate about. We have much to feel encouraged about. We have much to feel protected about with our Lord who has equipped us with everything that 
we need. And he can do the same thing for you. As we transition to communion, I really want you to take some time before you come up to really, if you're a child of God, ask the Lord, like, do I know you? Am I trusting in you? Probably repenting of not trusting in the Lord, uh, not trusting in his power. Um, the circumstance, maybe trying to handle it in your way, and you've fallen short, and 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 you're in depression, and you're and you're you're at that point or at that tip where you're where you're you're thinking about just walking away from the Lord. You don't understand what's going on, and you just you can't understand. You don't see any light in the future. Uh, I want to encourage you to remember who God is. God is the God of peace, the God that rose Jesus from the grave. The, the, the divine power. There's been no power like that before. The God who sits in heaven, the sovereign God of creation, is your father. That is who we have on our team. Let us do his will, not in our strength. Amen? Let us pray. Father, I just thank you for...